make a few domestic announcements to help you get out of the conference um, soci things socially as well as professionally. Um, dinner tonight on the first night of conference is an informal one when all delegates have the chance to dine around in the restaurants. Um, there are two restaurants in the hotel itself and two outside within the grounds that are all accessible by the hotel shuttle bus. And you will find that there's a desk in the foyer and upstairs by the lobby where you can register for this dinner tonight if you haven't already done so. And you can dine with colleagues or, or wherever of your choice. Um, if there are any delegates here um, who've not made arrangements and would like to dine uh, with other delegate colleagues at the conference with SRHE, there is an SRHE table in the Olive Tree restaurant at 7.45 and when you book for dinner tonight you just say I'd like to be booked on the SRHE table and they will tell you where to go. Um, next, tomorrow night we have the formal conference dinner and that is a, a, a ticket pre-booked affair. Um, if you want to come to the dinner, I think we have a few places still available and you can get some tickets from the conference information desk which is just outside the Carnarvon foyer. And in addition to the conference information desk where you should go for any help at all on conference with your presentations, we also have this year an SRHE stand uh, and we very much hope that you will come and see us there as well and talk to us. Um, because we are very keen to meet the needs of the higher education community and this is a great opportunity to be able to, to do that with you. Now at this particular juncture my job is normally done and I'm made to stand down um, having said the domestic things but I, I want to take a break with tradition and just say a few things um, about the actual conference theme this year which of course is what is higher education for. So we live in interesting times um, if we stop messing about and drop the euphemism, we live in difficult times, complex times, troubling times, and at quite a few times, really quite worrying times. Now, I'm not sure, and I hope to learn from you during the course of the conference, whether in saying that there is a slight UK bias, um, but our feeling in the society is that with its very large international membership that we can um, communicate with and learn from, that some of these pressures and some of these concerns that academics feel under in the UK are pretty similar actually to those felt by many of you around the world to a greater or to a lesser extent. And what sort of things are we talking about? What keeps us awake at night? Uh, pathetic, isn't it? We do all have another life, but the commodification of higher education, financial constraint coupled with commercialism, complex and contradictory funding policies and mechanisms, everything for sale, to borrow from my colleague Roger Brown's forthcoming book title, all these things are evident at every turn. And does it matter and should we care? I believe and the society believes that we should. We believe that there are lines that could and should be drawn in the sand before we lose some of the things that are core to um, higher education, before these things become irreversible and irrecoverable. But trying to define these lines in the sand is not easy. Finding consensus is extremely difficult, and I promise not to mention herding cats again this conference. But hence the second part of our conference theme, which is shared and contested ambitions. This is something we hope to explore with you during the conference. Can we find some consensus on what higher education is for and work to defend, um, and, and work to defend this consensus? From a world perspective, does this actually matter? It used to be um, said that in the United States, if the United States sneezed, Britain caught a cold. What if we actually have pneumonia and it's really serious? Is this a global issue or is it just a domestic one for us? Now, Alexander Pope, who was a not very, now very much less studied, um, excuse me, I'll get that back up again. 19th, is, I beg your pardon, 18th century poet. He wrote in rhyming Horatian couplets, um, which had that niggling habit of sticking with you from school days. And he said in one of his poems, things grow dear as they grow old. It is the rust we value, not the gold. And in my A-level English class at school, we had great fun dissecting this to mean that nostalgia was bad, looking backwards was regressive, that we see the past through rose-tinted glass, and that the perceived value of what had gone before is simply a mirage. And as troublesome teenagers at the time, this appealed to us. It was a lovely stick to beat our parents with but now parents ourselves, they have a slightly different ring to them. And this couplet could be very much the shorthand for the mantra of current UK higher education policy. Forget the past, don't look back, forget all that you held dear, 
Don't cling to the old ways or the old thinking about what higher education is for. Look to the future, to the brave new world of higher education, 21st century. And yes, there are many great ways, new ways of thinking and of doing. And higher education, higher education academics across the world have grasped these and made them all very much their own. We have moved with the times, we are moving with the times, but not everything feels right or as we would like it to be. Or indeed for those who are going through higher education, as David Watson will say a little bit more about tonight in his speech about what does higher education do to students. Those who are going through higher education, the student as a consumer, whether they wish to be or not, the public and the private competing alongside each other cheek by jowl, higher education policy and practice paying scant regard to the available research evidence and the needs and expectations of future generations. So we have a real onus on us, I think, to articulate these thoughts more clearly, especially in demonstrating what the research evidence tells us and what makes good and sound sense in higher education policy and practice. And finally, on a, on a note slightly closer to home, uh, those of us in the learned societies are not immune to some of these interesting and complex times. We are also under scrutiny and being asked to justify our existence and prove our worth and value. Learned societies are educational charities in the UK. It means we have some very, very small tax advantages, and that's bringing us into the spotlight at the moment, along with other well-known coffee chains, online retailers and search engines. The UK University's minister is asking of learned societies what we're for and what's the point of us, especially if we are too going to challenge higher education policy. The problem is we're not sure who he's asking, and we're certainly not sure if what, what the people he's asking are saying. In addition, the UK government's decision to commit to open access publishing for all UK-funded research, whether in part or in full, from April 2013, and possibly also for our research um, framework in 2020, is going to have an absolutely massive impact on the funding and business plans for all learned societies, and most especially in the humanities and social sciences. So I have a slight little question to add to the shared and contested ambitions and what is higher education for, which is what a learned society is for. Do we add value to your professional lives? And how do we do that? And what should we be doing for you more? What does the higher education research community worldwide need and wants from its learned society? To help you just a tiny bit, um, the lanyards that we're all wearing, blue are the delegates, green is anybody from SRHE, so you can boss us around and ask us whatever you want. Yellow are for our keynote speakers, but those with red yanards are the your elected members of SRHE Council, and they've asked me particularly to say that they would like delegates to come up and talk to them about some of these issues and any of the other things that concern you. Um, I've strayed long enough from the domestic and administrative, but those of us in higher education who occupy the third space feel just as passionately about many of these things and about what we do. And so I hope that I have not craved your indulgence too long in doing this. I'm now going to simply invite uh, Professor Jill Jameson, the current SRHE chair, to introduce our first keynote. Thank you very much, Helen, and thank you to you all for coming here today. Uh, it's truly wonderful to see so many people with us back again at Celtic Manor, and the fact that you have found time within your schedules, no doubt very busy, possibly underfunded, possibly overpressurized, that you found time to be here to speak to and to welcome debate with your colleagues is wonderful. So in celebrating the higher education community in terms of those who are able to be present, I focus, uh, to echo what Helen has said, I focus very briefly on the conference theme, what is higher education for? I felt I knew once, I remember as a teenager with great dreams, uh, thinking about the university that I wanted to go to and thinking that I sort of knew what higher education was for. Now, I'm not so certain, and I think that many of us are finding within this both challenge and opportunity in this question. And in terms of contested ambitions and different ambitions, I wanted to remind us at a midwinter time, when we're coming to the nadir of the year, the very lowest point in terms of darkness in certain areas of the world, not all the world, I would <laughs> 
hasten to add, and uh, I come from a part in which at the moment it's brilliant sunshine. But just to remind us that at a time which, if you like, is a dark time, that there is within that space a space to question and a space to debate and potentially from contested ambitions and from disagreement to find answers, to find reconciliation. And in that debate, without being trite about it, I think the space of learned societies is essential to enable us to meet together and to remember that scholarship and debate, intellectual leadership, can take us to a shared space in which we find new answers and hopefully new opportunities. I'm reminding us that some people have found this time a time, in fact, of despair. I've had people who've worked in higher education for a very long time said to me that they don't quite know where we're going. This is not only in the UK, in which I think there's been a particular difficulty at this time to do with cuts, to do with constraints, to do with the uh, reduction in students, challenges of new policies, marketization, commodification. Many of these themes are coming to us from around the world in terms of the clash of cultures, the clash and change of identities within higher education, the challenge, for example, of open access. The debate and the extraordinary debate that I have witnessed on the IT forum as regards the role of MOOCs, I can't even pronounce it properly, let alone actually kind of wonder, where are we going with open access? Some very, very interesting opportunities, some amazing challenges. But to enable us to think about this, I wanted to welcome very much our keynote speaker, Professor Howard Hodson, fellow and tutor in modern history at the University of Oxford. Now, Howard will talk to us from his historical background of the intellectual leadership in terms of debate that comes from his primary work, but has now come into the contested space of higher education. So very much to welcome Howard and to introduce him. Thank you. appropriate slide to begin with, perhaps, given the gloomy picture that's been painted so far. Um, thank you very much for that introduction and um, for the unique uh, honor, perhaps unprecedented honor, of being the first intellectual historian to address this conference. And I'm sure you're all wondering, as I am, what an intellectual historian is doing addressing a, an international gathering of higher, ed uh, higher education policy experts. Now, clearly, um, as the person in the room with the least higher education policy expertise, I will not be uh, indulging in lecturing you on detailed policy prescriptions, nor in fact will I be looking back. Um, it's not the historical retrospective that I have to offer here. The historian's role is typically to step back and to put detail in broader perspective. And as an intellectual historian, um, in, I'm particularly interested in studying the ways in which traditions of intellectual fertility are grounded in social, political, economic, cultural circumstances and institutions. And this, I think, suggests the lines of a plausible contribution. Universities, I think we'd all agree, and the forms of intellectual creativity uh, which sustain them, which they sustain, are currently being reshaped by changing conditions, above all, changing economic conditions. And since the new economic order transforming them is increasingly global, this means, I think, that we need to step way back uh, to get a, a broader picture indeed. So um, this is uh, a kind of warm-up act for the more detailed discussions to follow, and also something which I hope will help provoke uh, lively discussion during the course of the conference. Now, if we were discussing the crisis of higher education policy before a general audience, an audience drawn from the general public, my first task, I think, would be to convince them that the tumultuous change uh, uh, affecting higher education in this country is merely an acute local manifestation of an extremely widespread and fast-moving global phenomenon. In this country, the media typically discuss the so-called reform of higher education in a domestic context, as if it were driven forward by the views of individual ministers or the policy preferences of one, or, of one or more of the three main UK political parties. 
In order to dispel this illusion, one would need to spend a good deal of time discussing texts like this. The official justification of Hungary's recent higher education bill published in 2011, which reads like a crude paraphrase of the key documents of UK government policy in higher education, the Brown Review, and the white paper published around the same time. The main objective of the restructuring of higher education in Hungary, it tells us, is to improve the competitiveness of the sector, to reflect the requirements of the economy and the labor market, to give preference to education in sciences and technical studies, to improve training structure, and to ensure the return of the cost of training. After juxtaposing similar statements from around the world, one would need to uh, itemize the features shared by many concurrent reforms moving forward simultaneously elsewhere. And some of these were itemized already by Helen. The withdrawal of public funding from universities, the transfer of the burden of funding from the state to the student, the redefinition of the student as a consumer, of the university as a service provider, of education as a market transaction, the concomitant commodification of education, that is the equation of the value of, almost, uh, of it almost exclusively with increasing economic profit, productivity, and earning potential, the vocal vocationalization of higher education, most evident in the prioritization of business studies, management, math, science, and engineering, privatization, part privatization, uh, and corporatization of individual universities and whole university systems, the exponential growth of for-profit higher education, the decline of academic self-governance, increasing managerialism within universities, the abolition of tenure, the casualization of the academic workforce, and the diversion of research funding from pure research to near-market subjects designed to serve commercial needs. In the midst of an international gathering of education experts, I uh, assume that no such survey is necessary. And although I don't want to homogenize uh, uh, education policy around the world, I don't want to dwell primarily on uh, trying to substantiate this notion, uh, which I, I believe is widely shared, that uh, the crisis in higher education, so particularly striking in this country, is, uh, is happening in, in, a, in a variety of different wells in many other parts of the world as well. Instead of arguing for the existence of a global crisis of higher education, I want to take its existence as my point of departure and try instead to identify its causes. Now, what are the properties of an adequate explanation of the global crisis in higher education? Well, since I'm arguing here a fairly consistent set of policies is being um, pursued in a variety of different ways in a variety of different places, then an explanation must make sense of those policies with regard to a coherent set of policy goals. And what I want to argue initially is that the the explicit set of policy goals which are being uh, proposed as an explanation of ju justification for higher education reform in this country do not meet that explanation because they are not internally coherent. So let me just rehearse uh, a series of half a dozen or so paradoxes or anomalies immediately thrown up by fundamental aspects of higher education policy in this country. Anomaly number one, the government of this country most famously has proposed to put students at the heart of higher education system, but has done so by trebling tuition fees against the vehemently expressed preferences of the students themselves. Anomaly number two, the government of this country claims that marketizing higher education will increase student choice, but the direct and perfectly foreseeable result of their policy is the dra drastic reduction of the range of degree programs on offer to students. Marketizing higher education, thirdly, is supposed to drive up value for money, but the overwhelming body of empirical evidence suggests that it will drive it down instead. Fourthly, the way to thrive in a globalized economy is to invest in your areas of competitive advantage. Higher education is one of the UK's chief areas of competitive advantage, yet instead of investing in it, the government is removing direct public funding from higher education at unprecedented speed. Fifthly, as direct public funding is withdrawn from universities, however, the burden of government regulation on universities actually increases. Sixthly, traditions of academic self-governance been, have been ero eroded by corporate styles of management. But the management styles being imposed on universities are not those appropriate to creative industries central to the knowledge economy, like Apple and Google, but old-fashioned autocratic hierarchical forms of line management more appropriate to the manufacturing sector 
or a grocery store. Seventhly, ministers endlessly re-emphasize the importance of universities to the knowledge economy and to future prosperity. Yet the net effect of these reforms is to make the academic profession less attractive and affordable virtually with every passing term. In the face of the, these anomalies, number one to seven, higher education policy in this country makes very little sense. And this brings us to anomaly number eight. The UK government tacitly conceded that it could not defend its own higher education policies in the open democratic debate when it withdrew the higher education bill from the parliamentary agenda last spring. Yet despite this lack of coherent justification confidence that it can make its case in the open democratic forum of parliament, the radical reform of UK higher education moves irresistibly forward. Now the proliferation of anomalies like these implies something very important about the global university crisis. Namely, that it is not being driven forward by anything so insubstantial as a mere uh, ideological consensus. If these reforms are intellectually incoherent, then they cannot be explained in terms of a coherent intellectual vision. This means that the neoliberal ideological rationalization must ultimately serve as a smokescreen to hide from view a rather different set of motivations which dare not speak its name. In order to understand more clearly what is really driving the global university crisis, it seems to me, we therefore need to peel back this intellectual veneer and see what is going on behind it. Unfortunately, this is not difficult to do. An ideal point of departure is, or rather was, the website of the UK government ministry responsible for universities, the recently established uh, Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. A very brief word of background for those of you unfamiliar with the situation here. One of Gordon Brown's first acts upon becoming Prime Minister in 2007 was to abolish the Ministry of Education established by the Victorians, to decouple higher, and uh, higher education from primary and secondary education, and to subordinate universities to a new Department of Business, Innovation and Skills. Here we have the basic organogram representing the new relationship with the Minister of Universities and Science institutionally subordinate to the Minister of State for Business, Innovation and Skills and the President of the Board of Trade. The chronology of this reorganization is very important because it demonstrates equally clearly that the subordination dates back before the financial crisis of 2008, when Gordon Brown was still boasting about how he had tamed the cycle of boom and bust. How then was this institutional subordination justified? Well, if you want to find out uh, and you click the About tab on this website, all you get now is this extremely bland and unhelpful statement. The Department of Business, Innovation and Skills is making a difference by supporting sustained growth and higher skills across the economy. But if you clicked this same link a year ago or two years ago or three years ago, you would have been taken to a far more revealing statement on this page, a statement presumably deleted precisely because it was too revealing of the kind of thinking uh, clearly driving university reform. The Department of Business, Innovation and Skills is building a dynamic and competitive UK economy by creating the conditions for business success, promoting innovation, enterprise and science, and giving everyone the skills and opportunities to succeed. To achieve this, it will foster world-class universities and promote an open global economy. Crucial thing to note here is the order of priorities. Business sets the objectives, science serves them, skills serve business and science, and universities provide skills. The subserviation of universities to business implicit in the organogram is thus made fully explicit in this original and very clear uh, and uh, compelling mission statement. Everything finally is ultimately subservient to the objective of building a dynamic, competitive, open, and global economy. This statement implies a great deal about the forces shaping UK university policy. And you'll, as we already saw from the instance of Hungary, com competitiveness and so on is, is very uh, 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 prominent elsewhere. Since the economy we are building is global, the forces shaping the, U the British university system ultimately come from outside the UK. Since the economy we aspire to join is open as well as global, our, our economy will have to be competitive. 
An open global economy removes barriers between nation states in order to facilitate the flow of goods, capital, services, and labor, forcing them to compete with one another in a single global marketplace. And that means the economy must be dynamic. That is, we must be willing to change anything and everything in order to maximize our competitiveness. There's no need to speculate, incidentally, whether this is the kind of reasoning underlying English university policy. One of the most momentous first acts of the first Secretary of BIS, Peter Mandelson, was to commission the Brown Review on the future of higher education funding, together with David Willits, then Shadow Minister for Universities and Science. And the summary, the very first chapter of the Brown Review rests the entire argument of the report on the need for, quote, sustaining future economic growth and social mobility in an increasingly competitive global knowledge economy. Same argument is omnipresent throughout the review itself and the white paper deriving from it. Hence the key question, how do we make the UK economy more competitive? The Brown Review answers this question in the same way as Wikipedia, by reference to the Global Competitiveness Report published each year by the World Economic Forum. This report organizes over 100 measures affecting business success into 12 main categories or pillars of competitiveness. And the fifth pillar of global competitiveness is particularly relevant to the global university crisis, higher education and training. As you can see here, the first two variables within this pillar, quantity of education, are quantity of education. That is to say, the enrollment ratios for secondary and tertiary education. These variables explain why maintaining, the quality, maintaining quality at the expense of quantity is not an option for any country trying to maximize its competitiveness as measured by the World Economic Forum. The, section, the second heading is quality of education, with particular effort, uh, emphasis on math and science education and on management schools, precisely in line with the reforms sweeping throughout the university world, and specifically mentioned, for instance, in the Hungarian example. The third heading is on-the-job training, which rather anonymously includes specialized research. Although notice specialized research services. Research is something which uh, serves uh, other purposes outside itself. This is in keeping with the increased vocationalization of higher education on the one hand, and the subordination of research to the needs of business on the other. Together, this eight-point plan suggests why university curricula worldwide are being reshaped in essentially the same way. They are following a standard blueprint helpfully provided by the World Economic Forum in line with standard corporate thinking. The World Economic Glo uh, Forum's Global Competitiveness Report provides equally clear insight into the reasons why university funding is being radically restructured around the globe. University funding. To see why, all we need to do is turn to the profile for any of the advanced Western countries in the report itself. Here, for instance, is the list of the most problematic factors for doing business in the UK. And as you can see, the number one problem is high tax rates. For most continental countries, this complaint about tax rates is typically combined with restrictive labor regulations or inefficient government bureaucracy. Same applies, interestingly, to the UK, in, uh, US. Inefficient government bureaucracy, tax rates, and tax regulations constitute three of the four most problematic factors for doing business in the US. Now, viewed from a hard-headed business perspective, the implications for university policy of this uh, uh, kind of data could scarcely be more straightforward. In order to compete in a knowledge economy, business requires a highly trained labor force closely tailored to its needs. But training this labor force is expensive, and funding this training through taxation cuts directly into business profits. So business naturally wants to externalize the cost of higher education, that is, to get someone else to pay for training the labor force it needs, and also the research it needs wherever possible. And the largest and most influential transnational businesses achieve this by threatening to relocate elsewhere if national governments raise taxes thereby forcing governments to transfer the burden of higher education funding from taxpayers to students. So here we have implicit in the framework of the Global Competitiveness Report of the WEF, another central component of the global university crisis, namely the determination to transfer the burden of funding undergraduate teaching from the state to the student.
Now this raises another urgent question. What exactly is the World Economic Forum? Who belongs to this group so influentially reshaping higher education in the corporate interest? Well, if we go to the home page, you can find this reassuring statement. The World Economic Forum is an independent international organization committed to improving the state of the world by engaging business, political, academic, and other leaders of society to shape global, regional, and industry agendas. Who could object to improving the state of the world? Well, it depends partly on what you mean by independent. Independent of whom? Scrolling down to the bottom of each and every page uh, and clicking the members link here takes you to the members page where we can learn if we enlarge list that forum members are companies that are driving the world economy forward. Typical member company is a global enterprise of more than 5 billion US dollars in annual turnover. So there you have it in black and white, ladies and gentlemen, this influential blueprint for overhauling university po policy worldwide has been designed and propagated by a global consortium of large transnational corporations, each doing over $5 billion of business annually. This puts matters, I think, in a fresh light. The sweeping reforms currently affecting English universities are not so much the result of UK government policy as merely the local implementation of a global policy formulated and propagated by institutions like the World University Forum in Davos, a forum in which, incidentally, most members of the Brown Review have participated in recent years. The UK White Paper on Higher Education proudly declares that it's putting students at the heart of the system, but this suggests instead that it is international big business which is placing it itself at the heart of the global university system. Now, our conception of how they're doing this is, uh, is uh, clarified further if we give closer attention once again to the fifth pillar of competitiveness, higher education and training. The asterisks here mark those measures which are based on hard statistical data. In the case of higher education, it's only the data on participation rates which is based on hard statistical data. Here is throughout the report, only about a third of the data, of the, uh, data are of this hard statistical variety. So what is the basis then of the other two-thirds of measures provided here? We all know how difficult it is to produce a reliable league table even of universities in the world leading world's leading economies. How then does a World Economic Forum manage to come up with a measure, for instance, for, quote, the quality of higher education, of, of education systems in every country in the world? Well, introduction to, the introduction to these reports assure us that they're based on the latest theoretical and empirical research. And here's how they do it. The indispensable tool in the assessment of national competitiveness is the executive opinion survey, which provides the majority of data on which this league table is based. Here you can see the uh, WEF boasting of the fact that the 2012 executive opinion survey canvassed the opinions of 14,600 business executives. Now you might suppose that each one of these 14,650 executives was asked to give their views on each of the 100 variables for each of the 144 countries uh, included in the rankings. But that would mean each executive had to ask, answer 14,000 questions. And this is not the way it works. Each, each executive is asked to give their judgment on the situation only within their own country. To measure the quality of educational systems worldwide, for instance, the WEF simply asks the executives the following question. How well does the education system in your country meet the needs of a competitive economy? One, not well at all. Seven, very well. And as you can see on this table, of those 14,000 executives worldwide, 94 executives in Uganda commented on the excellence of Ugandan educational system, 104 in the Ukraine commented on the Ukrainian system, and the 93 executives in the UK commented on the British educational system. Nor were all of these 93 UK executives great captains of industry. Over half, that is to say 49 of 93, oversaw businesses employing less than 100 people. 
So when the Brown Review warns us that we must overhaul the UK university system because Britain has slumped to 18th place on the higher education ranking of the WEF Global Competitiveness Report, what it's really saying is that we must radically overhaul our university system because 93 business executives think less of the primary, secondary and tertiary education in the UK than a similar number of different business executives think of the educational system in 17 different countries. This raises some obvious questions. Whether these busy executives are particularly well informed, whether their answers, for instance, might be influenced by something other than the evidence presented to them. But there's an even more fundamental flaw evident uh, in the bizarre results from this method of assessing the educational systems in the world. Here you have uh, a section of the ranking of uh, education systems worldwide. And you can, see for, you can see, for instance, Koreans, world famous, uh, uh, toward the bottom there, world famous for their educational zeal, and according to the OECD, educating a higher share of their population to tertiary level than any other country in the world, are outranked in this World University Forum lead table by Zimbabwe, for instance. Well, here's another anomalous result. According to the IMF, Luxembourg is the richest country in the world, with an average GDP per capita of 116,000 American dollars. But according to the World Economic Forum, its educational system is inferior to one of the poorest countries in the world, the Gambia, with an average GDP per capita of less than $1.50 per day. How do we account for these bizarre results? The problem is not merely that the data is subjective, and subject to manipulation, the problem is also that like is not being compared with like. The WEF asks each executive, how well does the education system in your country meet the needs of a, comp of a competitive economy? But different countries in different stages of development compete in very different ways, as the World Economic Forum is perfectly well aware. Here you have factor-driven economies on the left, efficiency-driven economies in the middle, innovation-driven economies uh, uh, to the right. The Gambia and Zimbabwe on the left-hand column are both categorized as factor-driven economies. That is to say, they compete primarily on the basis of unskilled labor and natural resources. Luxembourg and South Korea are innovation-driven economies, competing primarily on the basis of their capacity for cultural, commercial, and technological innovation. For a factor-driven economy to be competitive, most workers scarcely even need primary education. For an innovation economy to be competitive, many workers need cutting-edge knowledge and skills which only high levels of education and training can provide. It may be that the primary school system in the Gambia meets the needs of its factor-driven competitive economy better than the university system in South Korea meets the needs of its innovation-driven economy, but does this mean that the Gambia has a better education system than South Korea? Well, it does, according to the World Economic Forum, the brilliant minds driving the World Economy Forum uh, forward. And also to those in the Brown Review and similar bodies worldwide who seem to be taking this kind of compilation seriously. The key to maintaining prosperity in an open globalized economy is to maximize competitiveness. The key measure of competitiveness is widely regarded as the World University Forum's Global Competitiveness Report. But these reports are in fact little more than very poorly designed questionnaires recording the subjective opinions of 14,000 business executives and the rest is ultimately down to packaging. The World Economic Forum's Global Competitiveness Report offers business people a means of giving their personal views both pseudoscientific authority of a metrics-based league table and the moral authority of a philanthropic organization devoting to improving the state of the world. As a league table of university systems, the fifth pillar of the Global Competitiveness Report is practically worthless. Yet so spellbound are politicians by the spectacle of global capitalism that has nevertheless become the blueprint for radical reform of one university system after another. Now I've dwelt for perhaps too long on the WEF's Global Competitiveness Report because it reveals so clearly how university reform is being shaped by the needs of transnational corporations. Before moving on, I should perhaps add parenthetically that as well as articulating this agenda, the WEF actively disseminates it as well. Here's one way in which they do so, through the recently established World University Forum, which first met in Davos in 2008. 
As you can see here, the 2012 conference meeting last January was originally called on the topic, Reinventing the University in a Time of Crisis. The still more important point is that the WEF is not alone in promoting this agenda. Here, for instance, is the World Bank page for tertiary and higher education. And clicking the work link to World Bank priorities for tertiary education provides some interesting reading, especially since the World Bank can use its vast reserves of money to advance these priorities. The World Bank, in its own words, gives priority to tertiary educational reforms that include increasing institutional diversification, that is to say, provide, uh, promoting private alongside public, strengthening science and technology research and development capacity, precisely the emphases propagated by the World Economic Forum, improving the quality and relevance of, higher ed of tertiary education, relevance one presumes, especially to the economy, which is the bank's primary sphere of interest, establishing sustainable financial systems. Sustainability was, of course, the core of the Brown Review's initial remit. To encourage responsiveness, responsiveness again to whom, and flexibility, i.e. willingness to undergo radical reform. Strengthening management ca uh, capacities, that is to say, further increasing the proportion of managers per student and faculty member, and the capacity of management to control every aspect of university life. In short, the World Bank's priorities for tertiary education coincide very closely with the agenda uh, being forward, driven forward right around the world and with that of the World Economic Forum. And if you want some of these implications spelled out more explicitly, you can turn to the World Bank's Education for Development blog and learn important lessons like a good public education system means public spending, but not necessarily public provision. Similar statements can be found in the OECD and, OECD and even UNESCO. So the impact of the global competitiveness reports are magnified by the fact that they seem to underlie a firm consensus amongst uh, uh, international agencies of this kind. Now a great deal more could be said about university systems that are being reformed to meet the needs not of students but of businesses, and particularly the world's largest businesses such as those which gather each year in Davos. But since time is short, I must uh, content myself by showing how this basic insight resolves one or two of the apparent paradoxes sketched out earlier. For the policies which make little or no sense when viewed through the veil of neoliberal economic orthodoxy suddenly snap into focus when this veil is drawn aside and we see the uh, economic interests underlying them. In several cases, these implications are obvious. Troubling tuition fees most obviously puts the needs of business, not student, at the heart of higher education system. In other cases, they uh, require a bit of commentary, and I'm afraid I must just select one example from quite a few that could easily be given to give uh, some impression of the way in which what makes little sense when uh, viewed through the official justifications of, of uh, public policymakers themselves makes perfect sense when it looked at from the corporate perspective. A good example is the UK government's otherwise inexplicable enthusiasm for importing the for-profit university experiment, which has so resoundingly failed to deliver value for money to US students and taxpayers alike. Again, I can't pause here to survey the ocean of evidence that for-profit universities offer appalling value for money to students and taxpayers. Evidence compiled by the US Department of Education, the US Government Accountability Office, the US Senate, the US Department of Justice, and the US Supreme Court, to mention a few. The point is that these flaws are observed when we put students or taxpayers at the heart of the system and view the for-profit university model from their point of view. If we view the for-profit model as a business proposition, its attractiveness become immediately apparent. For one thing, US for-profit universities are exceptionally good at making profit. The now famous Apollo Group, which owns the biggest for-profit universities in the US and the UK, declares $1 in five as corporate profit. But the industry leader here, as you can see from the slide from the US Senate investigation, ITT, rewards itself with almost twice as much. 38.4% of income is registered as profit. Moreover, the for-profit universities do not keep all of the profit for themselves. They introduce further profit-making opportunities for other businesses as well. Similar share of uh, market budgeting of the typical American for-profit university, that is to say 20 to 30% is uh, spent on marketing and advertising. 
therefore, of course, making further profit-making opportunities for marketing and advertising companies. At the 20 to 40% profit margin to the 20 to 30% marketing expenses and the sky-high executive pay packages, and over half of the tuition fees which fund these institutions are diverted from specifically educational purposes to other things. From the perspective of the student, seeking value from money, this is obviously a disaster. But from the perspective of investors wanting a gigantic return on investment, executives seeking high pay packets, or advertising and marketing firms interested in gaining access to larger shares of higher education budgets, the attractiveness of these reforms uh, could hardly be more apparent. With money such as this to be made, it's scarcely surprising to discover that the incessant pressure to introduce for-profit universities into the UK has not been coming from the students, uh, which Mr. Willits claims to be putting at the centre of the system, but from lobbyists eager to channel vast amounts of government-backed student loan money into private shareholders' portfolios. Once again, one need not infer this by looking at, at who benefits from the arrangement, directly and financially, the same logic underlies official UK government policy. To see how, we need merely return to the BIS website and familiarize ourselves with the slogan repeated there at least three times. Growth is the government's top priority, and every part of government is focused on it. Find out about what we're doing to create the best conditions for private sector growth. So if every part of government is focused on this goal, then presumably that part of the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Skills called the Ministry of Universities and Science is also relentlessly focused on creating the conditions for private sector growth. Within BIS's own terms of reference, the privatization of the UK university system thus becomes virtually an end in itself. So when in the near future this race to the bottom bankrupts a once sound and solvent established English public university, its takeover by a Wall Street-backed for-profit corporation is not the unfortunate byproduct of government policy, it's its successful realization of the government's top priority stimulating private sector growth. And when a for-profit university takes precisely the same funding which would have been allocated entirely to academic purposes in the public university and channels a quarter of it to stockholders and executives and another quarter to marketing firms and advertising outlets, this is precisely what it means to make private sector growth a higher priority than, say, higher education. And if this impoverishes the cultural and political life of the nation and future generation of low-income students, that's not a fatal objection because the government's pro top priority is not to put British students at the heart of the system, but to stimulate private sector growth. The obvious conclusion, marketization and privatization of our university system and the introduction of for-profit providers is being pushed forward aggressively not because it offers advantages to students, citizens or taxpayers, but because it offers enormous attractions to huge, wealthy and, ag and aggressive, largely transnational corporations. Well, let me... Uh, begin to wind down towards conclusion. What then is causing, and uh, the problem is of course one would need to go through all those anomalies I sketched out at the beginning and show how what seems anomalous when viewed through the official uh, justification of these policies uh, actually becomes perfectly straightforward when viewed through the unspoken uh, driver of um, uh, 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 meeting the needs of uh, business, and particularly the sorts of businesses assembled in the World Economic Forum. What then is causing the global assault on the university? My argument here is that we need to strip off a series of disguises intended to veil that cause from view and make this process politically palatable. It's not ultimately about driving up standards or driving down costs. It's not ultimately about choice or putting students at the heart of the system. It's not primarily even a response to the debt crisis, a coherent attempt to save money, or to lower the level of indebtedness. Nor, in fact, is it an ideological conviction. It's an ideological conviction which antedates the financial crisis, but we need to strip away that ideological layer as well, since this ideology is so obviously the rationalization of the interest of the dominant institutions in the international economic system. The basic logic of the situation, I think, is quite straightforward. In a post-industrial knowledge economy, knowledge is money. Commercial corporations exist for the sole purpose of making money. 
In order to make as much money as possible, they need the knowledge-making industry restructured to serve their needs. But making knowledge also costs a lot of money, and these same corporations do not want to spend their own money making knowledge if they can force someone else to pay for it. So transnational corporations threaten to relocate elsewhere if national governments raise taxes, thereby forcing governments to transfer the burden of higher education from taxpayer to student. And they lobby relentlessly to ensure that the knowledge-making industry is closely adapted to their needs. The end result is inevitably to squeeze out of universities mo much of what they were originally founded to do. After all, in the hard-headed business world, inefficiency is everything no which does not contribute directly to making a profit. And since mo much of what goes on in universities does not contribute uh, directly to profit-making, business leaders will continue to see uh, opportunities for further efficiency savings until every last ounce of non-profit-making activity has been squeezed out of the universities which come most directly under their control. Now at this point, I can't resist uh, a brief historical perspective. In my own period of expertise, the 17th century, the most economically advanced countries in Europe invented the private chartered corporation and sent it out to the far reaches of the world to harvest profit, and eventually to colonize vast ports of the globe in order to make the extraction of profit more efficient and reliable. But in the 20th century, these colonies, and then the corporations, slipped through the fingers of national governments. And now in the 21st century, the, cor the corporations are returning home to colonize us. At this point, this implies that globalization is no longer a problem merely for the poorly trained and poorly educated. It now affects everyone. After all, academics are amongst the world's most highly educated workforce, but these forces are now threatening to erode the most fundamental of academic values, the pursuit of knowledge and understanding both as ends in themselves and as means of pursuing a variety of public and private goods above and beyond the maximization of profit. And this brings us to the deepest level of the university crisis, the anthropological one. Neoliberal economic theory in its crudest form is founded on the premise that all human activity is ultimately governed by the attempt to maximize one's financial advantage. However inadequate such a principle may be as a guide to how healthy-minded people actually behave, when business is placed at the heart of a university system, it rapidly becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Universities exist to critically examine and transmit to the next generation all the knowledge and values which past human societies have cultivated. But the complete subordination to the monetary values of the market will squeeze out of universities all those values which do not contribute to the short-term maximization of financial advantage. As a consequence, this kind of economic globalization now threatens to erode the cultural and intellectual life of our universities in essentially the same way as it already has the cultures of more vulnerable communities around the world. Now, in conclusion, I think I need to uh, address two unstated objections, which I think help account for the fact that what I regard here is actually quite straightforward conclusions drawn from readily available evidence on, uh, on, on a very prominent institutions' websites is not part of, uh, is a more, not a more prominent part of the discourse of higher education at the moment. The first is the charge that the kind of perspective I've just outlined is anti-business, which is virtually a heresy, or even worse, anti-capitalist, which suggests that one is an unreconstructed socialist or a relic of a bygone age hopelessly out of touch with 21st century reality. This is an objection, I think, which needs to be knocked firmly on the head. The analysis suggested cannot legitimately be described as anti-business. Not opposed to business, to enterprise, to innovation, to wealth creation, to capitalism, or to the profit motive. What I object to is the subordination of every other human value and motivation to them. And that is what I take the full marketization of the university to entail. This leads to a second accusation, namely that this vision of global campaign to subordinate the university to the global economy sounds like a giant conspiracy theory, especially when reference is made to the role of international institutions like the World Bank and the World Economic Forum in coordinating it. But nothing so extravagant is needed in order to sustain the kind of analysis I've suggested above. 
Rather, the subordination of the university to the economy is the result not so much of conscious choice as of the inner logic of the current global economic system playing itself out. Logic works like this. Private commercial corporations are, the largest, wealthiest, and most are amongst the largest, wealthiest, and most influential institutions in the world. These same corporations legitimately use their wealth and influence in order to pursue their basic objective, the maximization of financial return to stakeholders. Corpora corporations pursue this basic logic by relentlessly lobbying governments to shape the institutions of society into the configuration which maximizes their profits while minimizing their expenditures. In a globalized knowledge economy, one of the institutions of society most relevant to businesses is the university. So businesses are inevitably attempting to bend the university to serve their will. So some of the most important, powerful institutions in the world are pushing relentlessly to subordinate the university to their purposes. And the problem here is that there is no equally powerful institution pushing back, opposing this pressure in a determined, conscious, coordinated fashion. In an ideal world, government might perform this function. But if, as the BIS website suggests, universities have been institutionally subordinated to business and the goal of business is maximizing private sector growth, then the British government, in any case, has surrendered this function. All three main UK political parties have so fully internalized the neoliberal analysis of the omnibenevolent of markets that they are now virtually members of the business lobby, not guardians against it. In other words, it's not the role of the corporation to defend academic values, but no other institution is well-placed to play this role. And in such conditions, the pro proposals will subvert fundamental academic principles, meet no effective opposition. So while huge impersonal forces strain to bend universities to their service, no organization exists to remind the public, and thereby policymakers, of the indispensable purposes served by universities and of the institutional arrangements required for them to serve those purposes. If this analysis is correct, then what is needed is a new species of non-governmental institution, which exists for the sole purpose of defending academic values and the institutional arrangements best suited to promoting and sustaining them. Now, I do not want to turn this opening uh, address into an advertisement for the newly founded Council for the Defense of Uni British Universities, but nor, on the other hand, do I wish to conclude without mentioning the fact that a growing group of academic colleagues in this uh, country will be putting this kind of analysis I proposed into action and seeing what can be done. Viewed in economic terms, it must be confessed, this seems like a very unequal contest. The transnational corporations gathered in Davos have infinitely more economic resources than any other organization opposing them could ever hope to assemble. But viewed in academic terms, the balance of forces is not so lopsided. After all, the UK university system has infinitely more intellectual resources at its disposal than the Minister of Universities and Science. The academic community could merely organize itself into a form in which those resources could be deployed effectively, then Westminster and Whitehall would be completely overwhelmed. Few academic disciplines are potentially more devastating in such a campaign than higher education policy. So I shall be very interested to see during the remainder of this conference whether a significant fracture of the, fraction of the higher education policy community is willing to put its intellectual armaments at the disposal of a campaign such as this. Thank you very much. Thank you for an excellent and very challenging speech, which was both intellectually stimulating and uh, challenging to us in terms of the debate that we have an opportunity to participate in with our colleagues over the next few days. So I wanted to say thank you to Howard.
Now, the time for questions, uh, regrettably, is not with us today, um, but we've had an opportunity to reflect on the many very important points in terms of higher education and the current debate on it that Howard has. Uh, um, and I have to say we're honored to have uh, somebody who's been so interesting in terms of the analysis that he has provided. And so with those reflections, we're going to now participate in the rest of the debate today. And I'm going to hand over to Helen. We are going to go straight now into sessions because, as you will appreciate throughout the conference, one of my other passions is to make sure that all of you who've come to present your papers get the full time to do so. However, I do want to say that um, we're fortunate that Howard Hudson is going to be with us throughout the course of today and this evening uh, and also through a large chunk of tomorrow. Um, so he will be participating in the conference and around at the coffee breaks. And I, I know that he would very much like to engage uh, with many of you here. So I think it's, it's fair to say that, Howard, that I'd be very, very, very happy to take up some of these um, issues with you. Um, I'd like to thank him personally and invite you now. You've got 15 minutes to get to your next sessions and for those to start. Thank you very much.